Hello. Hello, and welcome to episode mini five of the Historical Horrors podcast. The podcast where we tell you about women and other disenfranchised peoples throughout history who are remembered for their deviance from the norm. This is a podcast about people, mostly women, biological or trans, who have been overlooked in history. And if they are remembered, it's often in regards to their relationship with men, and that means it's almost always sexual. The point, then, is to talk about them as people. We're not here to lecture you. We're here to tell you stories, because that's why we like history. We like stories. Before we dive in, a quick disclaimer. All views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are our own and are not necessarily held by our workplaces. I'm Kristen. And I'm Tanaya. And this week, our theme is for all the thinkers. Great minds. I was a mere sensation. My house of cards had no foundation. Although it has tumbled, I still am his body and soul. Are you a thinker, Kristen? I can be an overthinker. Oh, I'm definitely an overthinker. I'm certainly not a scientific thinker like my lady today. Oh, yeah. So who are you doing today? I am doing a woman named Emilie du Châtelet. Emilie was a 18th century philosopher and scientist, often best remembered for her relationship with Voltaire. No, no. Yes. She's often also been called his assistant. Of course. Emilie is quoted as saying, a love of learning is the most necessary passion. In it lies our happiness. It's a sure remedy for what ails us, an unending source of pleasure. Oh, I like that. I do too. But then I think back to like learning in university and writing an essay and I'm like, she's a masochist. (laughs) I mean, I'm still in academia, so... Émilie du Châtelet was born the 17th of December, 1706, in Paris. Her mother was Gabrielle-Anne de Foulé, and she was a baroness, and her father, Louis-Nicolas Le Tonnelier de Breteuil, so Louis-Nicole, Louis-Nicolas. Oh, I was going to say, is that a girl? Is that a boy name? <laughs> Not Nicole. A member of the lesser nobility. Her full name is actually Gabrielle-Émilie Le Tonnelier de Breteuil, Marquise du Châtelet. Do you ever wish that you could have a really cool old name that had like tw- 10 parts to it? Kind of, but then I have two middle names, so I feel like I'm fine. Oh, never mind. Okay. I just feel shortchanged, I suppose. <laughs> I, l- I would like to have like a le or a du. Yeah. Yeah. Like an of something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. But when it all comes down to it, we're just going to call her Emilie. So Emily. Got it. Her early life and education have been somewhat debated. Her father held a weekly salon on Thursdays, the salon thing we've talked about in the past, where great writers and scientists were invited to discuss and have a drink. Be rich. Be rich and opulent. Mm-hmm. Clever. He also had an affair with a woman named Anne Bellinzani, a very intelligent astronomer uh, at the period. So this may have influenced Emilie. It seems that the greatest influence in her life was a man named Fontenelle, the secretary of the French Academy of Sciences, who would come by to speak with her about astronomy when she was only 10 years old. 
Her mother was also educated in the convent in her own youth, and more recent studies have suggested that she was actively involved in her daughter's education, though older accounts often said she tried to send her to a convent because she thought her education went too far for a young woman. Her parents were, however, very unusual for the period. She was given fencing and riding classes and numerous tutors brought in for literature, math, science, and philosophy. By the age of 12, she had us beat. She spoke Latin, Greek, German, Italian, and French fluently. What a bitch. Like, just, it just comes so easily. She was a great dancer. She played the harpsichord. Did you say it? Harpsichord? Harpsichord. Harpsichord. That's the one. <laughs> the, the weird, like, piano thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She sang opera beautifully and was an amateur actress. I hate her so much. But she was a badass because as a teenager, she wanted to buy more books, but she didn't have enough money. But because she was so good at math, she was a really great gambler. No. I think girl was counting cards. Oh my God. Like when I say no, I mean, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. To buy books. Bless my hero. Hero. Emily grew to be a very tall and beautiful woman who took great pride in her appearance And she spent quite a bit of money on clothes and jewelry, much of which she probably bought with her gambling money. Love it. On the 12th of June, 1725, at the age of 18 and by an arrangement, she married the 34-year-old Marquis Florent-Claude du Chastelet-Lemont and became the Marquise du Chastelet. They moved to Burgundy in September of that year, And shortly afterwards, she would have three children between 1726 and 1733. Okay, got it. Do you want to know their names? Absolutely. You know I do. All right. First one, like, cool. Françoise, Gabrielle, Pauline. So Françoise, Gabrielle, Pauline. Okay. Okay? Okay. Then she has a son. Louis, Marie, Florent. Louis, Marie, Florent. Love it. Okay. Mm -hmm. And her last son, Victor Esprit. Oh, I love that. Victor Spirit. I know. Victoria Spirit. Victoria Spirit. (laughs) That's that's, that's a good joke. She was a devoted, (laughs) she was a devoted mother, but her youngest died only a year. Spirit. Yeah, he died a year after his birth. Now it's not such a great joke. Well, now it's a losing spirit. Jesus. Her husband was a military officer, so he was often away from home. And this left Emily plenty of time to pursue her scientific interests. Get it, girl. Yep. She was devoted to her studies. She would keep herself up late at night by plunging her hands into ice cold water to wake herself up. No, go to bed. You're tired. I know. One of her most important contributions to science was her clarification of the concepts of energy and energy conservation. So she dropped, like, I, I'm, not, I'm not talking like, I'm, I'm talking about some serious scientific contributions here. Oh, I know. I think, I think you should see my face right now, which is just complete awe. Yeah. She was one of the leading minds of a period we call the Enlightenment. Mm. She, in this sort of experiment, took heavy lead balls and put them in 
to beds of clay. Like she dropped them into beds of clay. And she showed that the balls that hit the clay with twice the velocity penetrated four times as deep. Oh, shit. And then three times the velocity, nine times. So this suggested that energy is proportional. At like, So this suggested that energy is proportional to MV2, not MV, which is something that Newton, Isaac Newton had suggested. He suggested it, but not proven it. Yeah, so she proved it. And Isaac Newton was not very popular in France at the period. He was a bit of an oddball to like. Mm-hmm. But Emilie and a man who's about to become very important named Voltaire were both sort of champions for Newton. Wow. She ended up writing a work called The Foundation of Physics, in which she tried to consider the philosophical basis of science and to integrate the conflicting principles of men like Newton with other popular figures of the day, like René Descartes. That's very impressive. She was an extremely impressive woman, but this is the bit of her life she's best remembered for. Emilie had two known affairs. The first was with a man named François-Marie Arouet, who went by the pen name Voltaire, Voltaire. He was 12 years her senior, and he was a pretty big deal by this period. The man writes nonstop plays, essays, novels, historical and scientific works, and even poems. He's troublesome, loud, satirical, and critical of religions. He also had some pretty problematic views on the origin of different races, mm-hmm. which is kind of rich considering what Emilie herself wrote. To be happy, one must rid oneself of prejudice. Be virtuous, healthy, and have a capacity for enjoyment and for passion. I don't think she might. I, I don't like think. She, yeah. Our ideas of prejudice are so different because our ideas are like racial prejudice. I actually couldn't find any kind of commentary by her on that matter. Mm, fair. But Voltaire was very clear in his own writings that Emilie de Châtelet was the love of his life. He also had a bit of a love affair with his own niece, but we'll leave that for another time. Wait, so did Emily and Voltaire have a sexual relationship? They did. They first met in 1729 when he returned from his exile in London. Uh-huh. And by 1733, so just after the birth of her last son, Victor Esprit, their friendship had blossomed into something more. They were very close by the time that she lost her son in 1734. Yikes, okay. And by close, I mean Emilie invited Voltaire to live with her in northeastern France. He also very conveniently needed to flee because he'd published something a little controversial. Mm-hmm. During their first year, she kept going between Paris, like trying to be a member of the Parisian social group that she'd been very much at the center of and respected in, and the countryside where Voltaire was now located. Mm-hmm. But after a year, she decided to commit herself to the country and to her scientific studies. When speaking of this move, Emilie wrote, one life to the next. I like it. For 16 years, he was her lover under the eyes of her very tolerant husband. Sometimes the three of them actually lived under the same roof. Really? Oh, yeah. He he didn't seem to mind. He was like, okay. (laughs) I have an heir. All right. This is happening now. Okay. Voltaire and Emilie studied together and set up a laboratory in her home. He actually paid for the renovations. Their library included over 21,000 books. Oh, that's the dream. 
right? It's like, I'm imagining, it's like Beauty and the Beast. You walk into the library, the doors swing open, and you're like, I can die here. <laughs> I get, oh, I'm imagining. I'm also thinking about like my very tiny like bookshelf and like the stacks of books that are now accumulating against my wall because... I hide them from Jason. They're everywhere, but there are more hidden that he doesn't know about. Because <laughs> he'll tell you to get rid of them. Yeah. 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 They're in suitcases. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hopefully he doesn't listen. <laughs> now, important scholars often dropped in on Emilie and Valtar. And during this time, she published several articles and translations She's also credited by Voltaire in his 1738 work, Elements on the Philosophy of Newton. Okay. So, Voltaire, fun little fact about him, actually. Do you know the story of the apple falling from the tree onto Newton's head? Yes. That was told by his niece, by Newton's niece, to Voltaire, who made it popular in a publication shortly after. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. There's a little fun fact for you. I love fun facts. He actually may have been sort of the leading influence and in introduction of Emilie into to sort of Newton's scientific studies. Okay. But she ran with it. In 1737 and 8, they both entered the Paris Academy Prize contest on the nature of light, heat, and fire. Emilie actually joined because she disagreed with Voltaire's essay. They were extremely competitive with each other. As all great relationships are. Neither of them won, but both received honorable mentions. And she is the first woman to have a scientific paper published by the Paris Academy. Amazing. In this paper, Emilie suggested that the different colors of light carry different heating power and anticipated the existence of what is now known as infrared radiation. What? She is so brilliant. She appears to have had another affair... In 1748, with the poet Jean-François de Saint-Lambert. This affair led to a pregnancy, and Emilie was around 42 at the time. Not so great in the 18th century. She actually was extremely concerned about the pregnancy because she thought that it was so late term and likely to lead to complications. She was working up to 18 hours a day to complete her biggest project, a French translation of Newton's Principia, before she died. She included invaluable notes and examples to help others to understand and eventually expand further upon Newton's ideas. This is her last work and was published 10 years after her death on the return of Halley's Comet. Oh, shit. She died due to complications in childbirth upon the delivery of a daughter... Stanislas Adelaide du Châtelet in September of 1749. She developed a pulmonary embolism, which is a blockage of the artery, and died on the 10th of December that same year. Oh. A year later, her daughter also died. No. I know. For me, if you want a reminder of why we do the show, it's Emilie. She wrote the only available translation of Newton's Principia into French for many years used by numerous scientists, and is still somehow best remembered for being Voltaire's mistress. She believed in the rights of women to study science. She aspired to be a great thinker of her age, and she was. She is listed as one of the illuminators of the Enlightenment era. She was 
famous during her lifetime and throughout the 18th century. Her works were published and republished in Paris, London, and Amsterdam. They were translated into German and Italian, and they were discussed in some of the most important learned journals of the era. There were numerous men that chased after Emilie during her lifetime, and some even actually tried to pass off things that she'd put in letters to them as their own work. I feel like I'm like during this like recitation, like I'm getting a little bit like emotional. For me, I think it's Emily's words that speak and we should listen to her. She did not want to be remembered as Vodatile's mistress. During her own lifetime, she acknowledged that this was probably going to be her legacy. She said, judge me for my own merits. Do not look upon me as a mere appendage to this great general or that renowned scholar. Fuck. Voltaire, meanwhile, wrote, Emilie Châtelet was a great man whose only fault was being a woman. And I don't uh, think he's wrong. No, I know. It, it's like it hurts. It hurts it, how true it is. Ugh. But let us remember her for what she was, a great scholar who ran her husband's legal affairs, catered to Voltaire's extreme neediness and sensitivity, gave birth to four children, lost one, raised two, and died for her last girl. She said, let us be certain of who we want to be. Let us choose for ourselves our path in life and let us try to strew that path with flowers. Oh my God. That makes me feel so like empowered and sad and like, right. I love Emilie Chatelet. I have, I don't know how I learned about her years ago, but she was one of the first people I thought about when we came up with this podcast. Yeah. I mean, I've never heard of her, and maybe that's because I'm in a very Anglophone world, but yeah, that was great. Thank you. I highly recommend that people go and read some of her letters. She's got some other great quotes. You know, one of my other favorites is, okay. it is a privilege of affection to see a friend in all situations of his soul. Oh, I feel that way about you. I feel that way about you too. <laughs> so tell me, my friend, tell me about... Gertrude Bell. Oh, I love her. Um, I actually had not heard of her. And then you gave her to me as a birthday gift. I did. Yeah. You said, go research, go forth and research her. And I did. And now I'm like, oh, love her. I read a little blurb on her. And I was like, I'm going to read no further because I feel like tonight I can do this woman justice. She's my, she's my home girl. I just hit the microphone. I'm sorry. I, I've been trying to be a better girl about this, or a better person. Sources, Gertrude Bell by H.V.F. Winstone. Gertrude Bell, a selection from the photographic archive of an archaeologist and traveler by Stephen Hill. And good old Wikipedia. Good old Wikipedia, always. Always. Let's start with a quote from Gertrude herself. <laughs> No one knows exactly what they do want, least of all themselves, except that they don't want us. Who's us? I don't know. Women? Smart women? Thinking women? Any, any number above. A certain gentleman that I will get back to quoted her as being not a good judge of men or situations. Kristen has no comment. <laughs> On the 14th of July, 1868, in good old Victorian England, Gertrude Bell was born in Washington County, Durham. 
to, quote, a family whose wealth ensured her education and enabled her travels, unquote. Thank you, Wikipedia. You definitely have a chip on your shoulder today. Hmm. Her grandfather was Sir Isaac Lothian Bell, who was a liberal member of parliament. And when I say liberal member of parliament, I meant he was part of the liberal party, not that he was like all like a totally progressive liberal. Or like a capital L libertine. Yeah, exactly. So uh, he would expose her to international matters and encouraged her curiosity for the world and her later involvement in international politics. Her father was Sir Hugh Bell, second baronet, who was a progressive capitalist and lowercase progressive. Um, And he was a mill owner and he paid his workers well and took care of them, which made him, you know, progressive. Uh, and Gertrude actually would consult with her father in political matters for the rest of her life. That's so, nice. Like a nice father-daughter relationship. Yeah. Like who was like, yeah, definitely, girl. Like go forth and be smart. Uh, her mother was Mary Shield Bell, who died in childbirth with her little brother uh, when Gertrude was only three. And historians have associated this loss with underlying trauma because she had periods of depression and risky behavior. Yeah. God, yeah. It's, it's one of my greatest fears, childbirth. Yeah, it's, yeah I'm not going to do it. I hate that, my, that I want and I'm willing to do it despite this fear. Well, that's also biological, isn't it? Yeah, it's that baby's documentary, Tanaya, on Netflix. I'm not going to watch it. I refuse to watch it. It's the Ten Little Toes. Anyway... Her stepmother was Florence Bell Ney Olive, uh, who her father married when Gertrude was seven. And Florence was so cool. She was a playwright and an author of children's stories, and she was also the author of a study of the Bell Factory workers. And she instilled in Gertrude a sense of duty and decorum and encouraged her intellectual development. Great. Yeah. So she received her early education at Queen's College in London, and then she went on to Lady Margaret Hall at Oxford University when she was 17. Very prestigious, darling. Very prestigious, Oxbridge, darling. Uh, History was one of the few subjects that women were allowed to study, and so she specialized in modern history. Let's remember it's the 1880s, so how modern? Whatever. First woman to graduate in modern history from Oxford with a first or a 4.0 to my North American listeners. Yeah, we had a 4.0 system or like a 4.3. A 4.3. Very, a very good GPA. Magnum cum laude. She was smart. She was real smart. And she achieved this in only two years. So, what? I know. <laughs> so, uh, quote, this was a dangerous start to a young lady's career unquote. Uh, She traveled first to Romania and then to Persia to get rid of her Oxfordy manner. I love that. She's like, too posh. Too posh. Too much tweed. (laughs) Rough it up a bit. Need some sand. Just rub that sand into the tweed. That's right. (laughs) Sorry. Her uncle was Sir Frank Lascelles, who is a British minister, kind of like a British ambassador in Tehran. Uh, and when I say Persia, that's what it used to be called. It's now Iran. Iran. She, Iran. 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 Iran is the way Americans say it. I am American. Okay. Thank you. God. 
I do my best. I do my best, Kristen. I love you for it. Thanks. She published her first book, Persian Pictures, in 1894 about her journey, really well received. And then she spent much of the next decade traveling around the world. And in 1897, she took her first trip that went entirely around the world with her little brother, Maurice. And um, she has this quote about San Francisco that I have to tell because I love San Francisco. All right. I'm, I will permit it. Go on. Okay. I must tell you that San Francisco is not finished. The streets are the oddest jumble, first a tall building 25 stories high, then a wooden lean-to, then another great elaborate place, and so on. Moreover, the roads, except for the tram lines, are either a sea of mud or a wilderness of inlaid cobblestone. Directly you get outside the town, you find yourself in great tracts of sand overgrown with green shrub. To the right, you see the bay, a constant delight to look upon, studded with islands, filled with ships, its exquisite shores retreating further and further away from the Golden Gates until it looks almost like the sea itself, except for the vaguest lines of land in the far distance. You look so homesick right now. I love the bay. But all I can remember is the traffic. Stop it. Anyway, uh, in 1899, Gertrude took her first visit to Jerusalem where she visited Jebel Druze, Petra, and Palmyra. And I am so, so jealous. Then she took up mountaineering in Switzerland. As one does. As one does, darling. And this is like a girl after my own heart. She conquered mountains from 1900 to 1904. La Mege, Mont Blanc. She recorded 10 new paths or first ascents in the Bernese Alps in Switzerland. And she has this one story of a failed attempt at Finsterhorn in August of 1902 when a storm forced her to spend 48 hours on the rope with her guides clinging to the rock face in terrifying conditions that nearly cost her life. It just sounds so exciting. I, I, I love mountaineering. Yeah. Like, especially early 20th century mountaineering. Because you especially, know she did it in a skirt. You know she did it in a skirt. But women were also really into mountaineering and people don't know that. Like, there's a whole group of women. Do some research, people. Yeah. So, 1905, she goes back to the Middle East. She rode northwards, northwards through Syria and visited her friends in Jebel Druze. Uh, but she had to do these complicated maneuvers to avoid the Ottoman authorities. And that's when she wrote her most popular book, The Desert and the Sown, which was published in 1907. And I think it's still in publication. And then she continued through Turkey to Konya, and she studied early Byzantine ar architecture of Sicilia and Lyconia. And these findings were published in a series of articles in um, the archaeological review, uh, Le Revue Archéologique. And this is when she first visited Bin Berkeley's, which is known as the 1001 Churches on Karadag Mountain in the south end of the Konya Plain. And I genuinely have no idea where any of this is. But she copied the inscription from that church and later showed it to an archaeologist named Sir William Ramsey at Konya. And two years later, they collaborated in an extensive campaign of survey and excavation in the region. And the resultant publication, the 1001 Churches, 
published in 1909, was written with Ramsey. And it actually, in, as of 1976, remained the standard work on early Byzantine architecture in Anatolia. Influential great mind. Yeah, sorry. I'm an archaeologist. So like that is like my dream to go like traipsing around the Middle East. Like, yeah. Checking out churches, climbing a mountain. 1909, she left for Mesopotamia, where she visited the Hittite city of Carchemish, uh, where she mapped and described the ruins of Ukater and continued on to Babylon and Najaf. When she was in Carchemish, she consulted with two archaeologists on site, one of them being T.E. Lawrence. The T.E. Lawrence? Yes, Mr. Lawrence of Arabia himself. Well, well. He's actually the one who made the comment that she was neither a good judge of men or situations. Oh, why does he say that? They were not lovers, if that's what you're hinting at. Damn it. I know. But they are friends and acquaintances, colleagues even. So in 1913, she completed her last and most arduous Arabian journey. She traveled 1,800 miles from Damascus to the politically volatile Ha'il. Ha'il? Ha'il? Hall? H-A-apostrophe-I-L. Sure. Sure. Okay. Bell was held in honorable captivity for a month, but getting sick of this, she finally disturbed a group of men drinking coffee, spoke her mind, and then left them sitting as though she were a great sheik. That evening, a bag of money was sent to her with a message that said that she should leave at once and absolutely forego her intended journey further south. Gertrude said, thanks for the money, buddies, but fuck you. She proceeded to photograph the whole city of Ha'il against their wishes, marched straight south to Baghdad, and then returned to Damascus by way of uncharted ruins in the desert. What is this? Who is with her? No one. Is it just like her and a nice camel? I think so. Like a horse? She could have had a horse? Now, who knows? But uh, the trip to Ha'il was not published because World War I broke out. So she requests a posting in the Middle East. The British government's like, fuck you. She's like, all right, fine. She volunteers with the Red Cross in France, but later was asked by the British intelligence to get soldiers through the deserts. So in November of 1915, she was summoned to Cairo to the new Arab Bureau, which was headed by General Gilbert Clayton. Again, she met Lawrence, um, who was also working for the British intelligence Um, Lieutenant Commander David Hogarth recommended Lawrence and Bell to assignments to Army Intelligence Headquarters in Cairo in 1915 for war service. She was the only female political officer in the British forces at all. Like, not even, like, in Cairo or in the Middle East, but, like, in all of the British forces. That's insane. I know. 50% of your population. Yes, but we must fight the war with men. And they also were like, no, 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 don't help us out. And then finally we're like, oh, fuck, we need her help. Yeah. So the only, she was the only female political officer in the British forces. She, I already said that. She received the title of liaison officer correspondent to Cairo. As part of this great honor, she was the witness to the Armenian genocide in 1915, which is fucking horrible. Yes. Uh, And she has a quote where she says, no man can ever think of a woman's body except as a matter of horror instead of attraction after Ras Alan. So clearly it scarred her. 
Oh yeah, fucked her. Fucked her up good. It it should. That kind of incident should not be easy. No. In memory. I just I had to I had to acknowledge it, but we're gonna move on from this darkness. So after the British Troops took Baghdad on the 10th of March in 1917. Belle was summoned to Baghdad where she was given the title, the problematic title of Oriental Secretary. Yeah, I know. The dismantling of the Ottoman Empire was finalized by the end of the war in late January 19. The Ottoman Empire, if you're not familiar with it, is like this huge Middle Eastern uh, territory empire, really, that kind of includes... Turkey and Iraq and Syria. So this is when like the Middle East was starting to be broken up and it was done by the British because uh, the British are assholes and they basically just uh, drew some squiggles in the sand and were like, cool, this will work, right? And now we're still fighting wars about it. Like that's like, that's like Saddam Hussein and the Kurds and 2003, George Bush's war and Iraq and Afghanistan and Russia coming into Afghanistan and the Syrian civil war and like, this is, this is all it. I mean, they did the exact same thing with India mm-hmm. and Pakistan. And, the, and the, that's the, working out. The whole Kashmir situation. Oh, my God. Anyway, Bell was assigned to conduct an analysis of Mesopotamia. And she actually uh, had strong ideas about the leadership needed in Iraq. But the British commissioner, commissioner in Mesopotamia, Arnold Wilson, preferred Arab government under influence of British officials who could retain real control. But Bell's official report was entitled Self-Determination in Mesopotamia. So she believed in their independent rule. She did, yeah. The Brits tried to manhandle Iraq, but quickly realized that it would be cheaper as a self-governing state. So there was a conference held in 1921 called the Cairo Conference, which was held to determine the political and geographic structure of what later became Iraq and the modern Middle East. And Lawrence described Bell as being able to, quote, ignite fires in a cold room. She also, during her time in the Middle East, helped to found the National Library of Iraq and the Baghdad Archaeological Museum. So just to go back, though, like some quick caveats, uh, historians have pointed out that present troubles in Iraq can be traced back to the political boundaries that Bell herself conceived to create its borders. Though reports from her, her reports do indicate that these problems were foreseen, but she actually did believe that there were solutions for calming these divisions. Unfortunately, she was one of the people who lobbied for Sunni minority uh, control over the Shia majority, and Mm -hmm. this ultimately allowed Sunni dictatorships to grow and flourish. So that was something she didn't foresee. So she's not necessarily like responsible for it, but like. But she, she played could, an active role in the political situation in the Middle East. Yes. And then to be acknowledged whether it was good or bad. Yeah. And she endorsed the use of force against the Kurds. And there is a letter to her father in 1920 in which she says that uh, Mesopotamia is not a civilized state. So despite her belief that there should be independent rules, she still saw them as inferior. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uncivilized. Um, so, so the Oxford wasn't completely knocked out there, was it? Oh, British colonialism runs deep. Uh, in 1921, her health began to suffer. 
uh, lots of stress from writing books, intelligence reports, reference works, white papers. She had recurring bouts of bronchitis that were brought on by years of heavy smoking in the company of English and Arab cohorts and several bouts of malaria. In 1925, her family fortunes went into decline due to the post-World War I strikes and uh, the economic depression that followed. When she returned from Baghdad to a brief trip home to Britain, she developed pleurisy. And when she recovered, it was only to find that her younger brother, Hugh, had died of typhoid. So she was like in this state of like emotional Mm -hmm. decline. On the 12th of July, 1926, Belle was discovered dead of an apparent overdose of sleeping pills. She's buried at the British Cemetery in Baghdad's Bab al-Sharij district. And the funeral was actually a major event and was attended by the king of Iraq. Just some fun facts about her. She was fluent in Arabic, Persian, French, and German. And she also spoke Italian and it says Ottoman, but I think they meant Turkish. Mm -hmm. From World War I until her death, she was the only woman holding political power and influence in shaping British imperial policy in in the Middle East. And she had a passion for archaeology and languages. She never married then? She never married. She had no children. She did have a brief but pat- a brief but passionate affair with Sir Frank Swettenham. I'm sure that's pronounced differently, but it's spelled Swettenham. Let's pretend like it's not. I know it's probably pronounced like Sweetum. Um, so, and that was in 1904, and she maintained uh, letter correspondence with him until 1909. Mm-hmm. She also had an unconsummated affair with Major Charles Dowdy Wiley, but he was a married man, and they would exchange love letters from 1913 until his death in the Gallipoli campaign in 1915. Um, and when he died, she completely buried herself in work. In 1922, she wrote, I've gone back now to the wild feeling of joy in existence. I'm happy in feeling that I've got the love and confidence of a whole nation and a very wonderful and absorbing thing, almost too absorbing perhaps. And I think that that's great. She don't need no man. Mm -hmm. If you want to watch her in fictionalized versions, she's in the 1992 movie, A Dangerous Man, Lawrence After Arabia. There's a whole movie about her called Queen of the Desert which was made in 2015 with Nicole Kidman in it, which I've never heard of. So. I think that's how I came across her name. Oh. And then I was like, I'm not going to watch that, though. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why. But And then there's a documentary from 2016 called Letters from Baghdad, and her letters are read by none other than the Queen Tilda Swinton. Oh, well, that I'll watch. Yeah, exactly. And then apparently she's not in Lawrence of Arabia. She's not? Apparently. Please correct us if we're wrong. Me. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Budget cuts is the only thing I'm going to accept. It's a liter- Isn't it literally like four hours long? Yeah. I, I think um, Fraser tried to get me to watch it once and I fell asleep. No, I'm fairly certain he'd never watched it. And I was like, you should watch it because he's the only person in the world, I think, that would like it. Maybe. Maybe. I said the only person, but you know. The only person under the age of 40. That's true. Under the age of 60, maybe. Not going to be many of those left soon. It's 180 minutes or 220 minutes. You just completely ignored my really morbid coronavirus joke. But that's fine. 
I'm sorry. I'm so tired. No, cut that out. <laughs> I'm so fucking tired of hearing about it. Me too, if that makes sense. I've been singing my happy birthday every time I wash my hands. Twice. 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 I said twice. Or yeah. you can say God save the queen. The qu- or you can sing God save the queen once, but I don't know it. I only know the line, God save the queen. Happy and glorious. Something like that. Something victorious. Do we have a song for the mini? We do have a song because it's a mini. It's only one song for both both of our ladies. You found it. The song is Girls Don't Always Sing About Boys by Ego LMA. Sure. Um, And the lyrics are... I don't always think about boys, but I hear love is the only thing worth fighting for, as well as loving the same sex, sanitary kids for homelessness, grandfell mental health for all, mental health for all. I can't always think about boys because I've been reading about air pollution, sustainable fashion, learnt behaviors, why it all happens. So I guess I'll raise the issues with a nice beat behind me singing it's so sweet, you'll still buy me as I rethink the norm like. I feel like it's very, it's a modern voice which both of these women during their own lifetimes possessed. Yeah. And it is like, okay, sure. We had torrid love affairs, but like, that's not what we did. Yeah. That's not how we're defined. Um, I want to leave you with like one quote by Emily a little bit. I'm ready. Because of the mental health line. Self-love is always the mainspring, more or less concealed, of our actions. It is the wind which swells the sails, without which the ship could not go. I love it. Right? I love it. Thanks for listening to our fifth mini episode. You can reach us at our website on Insta at Historical W Podcast or on Twitter at Historic W Pod. All the links are in the bio. We are on all your favorite listening platforms and make sure to subscribe if you enjoy this, whatever it is. Uh, And please, please, please do give us a rating on iTunes if you can. That's where it can help us quit our day jobs. We'll be back soon with a full length episode. Thanks for listening. Bye.